Who is Jamie Starr? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie Starr. That's a trick question. This is Prince, the story of 1999, brought to you by The Current in collaboration with The Prince Estate, Paisley Park, and Warner Records. I'm Andrea Swenson. I'm an author and a host at The Current, and this is the third of four installments of our deep dive into the making of Prince's 1999 and the new super deluxe reissue of the album, which includes 35 never-before-released recordings from his vault. Like this one, it's called Don't Let Him Fool Ya, and Prince recorded this one alone at his home studio in Chanhassen, Minnesota, in the spring of 1982. I've had a chance to talk to a lot of people who knew Prince in the early 80s as he was developing 1999, and one theme that's emerged is that he loved watching movies. This is something that has been true about Prince for his entire life. In his memoir, he revealed that he had a transformative experience seeing Woodstock in the movie theater with his father. And later in life, he would rent out the Chanhassen Cinema for late night viewings with his friends. I actually got a chance to see a movie with Prince there once. It was after a show at Paisley Park. He rented out the theater and a few dozen of us watched the James Bond movie Spectre with him sitting in the back row. A handful of movies from this pivotal early 80s period clearly had a direct influence on his artistic output. They included the droning dark eraser head, which he watched on a loop at his Chanhassen house, and Quadrophenia, which jumpstarted his fascination with trench coats and planted the seed for the creation of his own rock films. Another movie Prince watched repeatedly when it was released in 1980 was The Idol Maker a more obscure and long out-of-print film about a visionary yet controlling manager who molds the careers of two unsuspecting young teen idols. Des Dickerson is one of the people who remembers watching that movie with Prince. It's well known at this point in time that he loved the movie The Idolmaker. And I think that was just an idea that hit him and stuck. And he wanted to do, like, the updated version of that. When he had an idea, he wouldn't let go until he did it. In Prince's imagination, his new Svengali manager role even came with its own name, Jamie Starr, the first of a long line of pseudonyms that he used while working with other artists. And Prince didn't just stop at coming up with a new name. He, and everyone he worked with, started insisting that Jamie Starr was a real person. He even staged a photograph of this new, over-the-top producer, with Prince himself wearing dark sunglasses, sticking out his tongue, and counting a stack of cash, alongside one of his protégés, Morris Day. We all thought it was hilarious that people thought that Jamie Starr was like a person. Because Jamie Starr was more a composite. Prince primarily, but then... You know, he had Morris's input, and I had a little bit of involvement. And there were a bunch of people who had a little bit of involvement. So at the end of the day, Jamie Starr was a creation of, <laughs> of people's imaginations. They believed what they wanted to believe. Thank you for flying Morris International. Don't touch the symbols. The next time you fly, fly the international lover. 
There is no Jamie Starr, although he swears there was. That's Dwayne Tudal, my author friend from Los Angeles. Dwayne and I both contributed liner notes to the 1999 reissue. Jamie Starr was his manager, engineer, the head of the Star Company, but uh, he was a creation from Prince. And I think that's part of the fun of, of what Prince was doing, is he would make these games that would take us a long time to decipher. And by the time we figured it out, he'd already moved on two or three steps. Jamie Starr was a voice that would be sort of like Morris Day. Uh, he was the guy that would complain on some outtakes, you know, saying, you know, you're fired. And uh, he was the guy that supposedly produced all of the time and all of Vanity 6 and I think even Apollonia 6. Prince wanted to spread out the credits a bit, whether it was the writing credits or the producing credits, and not seem like it was all him. So it seemed like a movement. So it seemed like an army, as opposed to just seem like coming out of one guy, out of one guy's house. And I think that's what he created is this, this appearance of an army coming from Minneapolis and put Minneapolis on the map. The first Jamie Starr production was The Time, a fierce funk group that was mostly made up of former high school rivals that Prince used to compete against in Battle of the Bands in North Minneapolis. In true Svengali fashion, the first Time record was actually recorded primarily by Prince, with help from his high school bandmate Morris Day, who would emerge as the leader of the group. The rest of the musicians weren't even recruited until it came time to take a band photo for the album's cover. Drummer Jellybean Johnson was a founding member of the time and still performs with the band to this day. He got his start playing in the hot Northside band Flight Time in the 1970s. So you were in Flight Time, I was right, in Flight with Time Terry. with Terry and Jimmy and Monty. And uh, Alexander O'Neill was going to be the singer for the time. So anyway, they had the faithful meeting out with Prince out there in 394, and Alex needed some paper. <laughs> so... Anybody knew Prince knew that was not going to go over too well with him at that point. So, so anyway, they came back. Uh, Prince told Morris, uh, "Well, you know, you could be up front. You get being to play the drums." And so I ended up being in the band because you know Morris always wanted to be the drummer. He didn't. He didn't think he could be a front person, and Prince taught him how. Right. So. Yeah. Did it surprise you that Prince was mainly forming this band of people that he'd known since he was young? It, it, it kind of surprised me because we were rival bands when we came up, but to me, it just showed me the respect he had for us, you know. Even though he, he dog us out, he, he knew we all had talent, and he could see that, and he could harness that, and he took advantage of it, and he made a, he made a great band. only thing, it, it turned into Frankenstein after a while, but he didn't know that at the time, you know. Right. He didn't know we were going to be as good as we were. generation, a long-lost recording of a song Prince likely intended for the time, 
If it sounds familiar, that's because it was eventually reimagined as new power generation and included on the Graffiti Bridge soundtrack in 1990. This original recording from January 12, 1982 is included in the 1999 Super Deluxe reissue, and it captures Prince's idea for a growing movement of people who were united in their fearlessness and their artistic freedom. He wanted the time to be his alter ego, the ultimate R&B band. We was his R&B side. The revolution was his, you know, experimental and pop. He knew he had to get the pop crowd, the white people, on his side to get to that next level. Right. But we was his black R&B urban side. That's yeah. That's what the time was. In the winter of 1981 and 82, Prince had so many ideas pouring out of him that he was recruiting more and more people to help him express his vision. One of those people was Brenda Bennett, who had become a core member of the groups Vanity Six and Apollonia Six. Brenda met Prince in 1980 when she was engaged to Roy Bennett, Prince's lighting designer. And the next year, Roy invited his new wife to come along on the controversy tour. Brenda had two jobs on that tour. She ran the video camera and gave Prince VHS tapes of his performances to review each night, which is actually a job she took over from Morris Day, who had graduated from cameraman to frontman of the time. And she helped manage Prince's evolving wardrobe of outfits and accessories. One night when she was backstage working, Prince walked in and realized something. Brenda could sing. They had given him one of the locker rooms for his dressing room. And I was in there setting everything up. And I'd set up all his stuff on the table for his hair, makeup, jewelry, all whatever. And he came in and looked at me and we said hello. And um, he had a little boom box that I had set up on, on the table. And he put a cassette tape into the boom box. And so I started singing along with it. And I started singing little pieces of harmony with it and stuff like this. And um, I turned around and looked, and he's sitting there staring at me in the mirror, <laughs> saying, I didn't know you could sing. He didn't waste any time. It wasn't like he thought about it and then talked to me later. He just turned around, looked at me, and he said, you could be the other hooker. And I, I just looked at him, and I said, sure, okay. And I turned around and walked away and went back to one of the trunks or something I was messing around with, with his clothing and stuff like this. And he said, no, 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 I'm serious. So I looked at him and I said, what do you have in mind? He said that he had uh, an idea for a, a three-girl singing group. And then he said, would you be interested in something like that? And I looked at Roy and he looked <laughs> and Roy smiled and he said, you'd be a fool not to do it. And I said, I'd love to do it. It was at that moment, it was solidified that I had accepted his offer to become a part of uh, his musical family. Many of those close to Prince in this era refer to his tight-knit circle of friends and collaborators in the same way, a purple family. As Roy Bennett recalls, as soon as Prince trusted someone, he began dreaming up new roles for them in his expanding vision. He knew she could sing, and I think a lot of that was the reason why he chose her. Right. He was also very much into including people that were close to him and around him in 
building these projects. I mean, at one point he even asked me to do one. I said, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. I do so. I do a completely different job for you. So thanks, but no thanks. Something that I've been thinking about with 1999, the album and, and the song too, is that, um, you know, it's really one of the first moments that other people are credited on a Prince record and are singing on a Prince record. You know, even 1999 starting with not Prince's voice. You hear, you know, Jill Jones and Lisa and Des, and it's it's interesting to me to think about, you know, was this a time in his life where maybe he realized he did need more people, you know, to help him do what he was going to do? Yeah, I believe so. But these are the people he was close to. I mean, it was his family. It was kind of like his uh, labyrinth of things that he could draw from. You know, we were the ingredients that happened to be sitting on the shelf close by. <laughs> <laughs> you're going in the pot. <laughs> yeah, you're going in the pot, buddy. <laughs> as soon as the controversy tour wrapped up, Prince asked Brenda to come to Minnesota to work on the new project. The name Prince had initially envisioned for the group, the Hookers, quickly evolved into Vanity Six. Despite the name, the group only had three members, Brenda, Susan Moonsey, and Denise Matthews, who would soon be known to the world as Vanity. We went to this house a split-level house at the back of a cul-de-sac. Um, I heard the music coming from downstairs, and I went, oh, is that the studio downstairs? Oh, this is cool. He's got it right here in his house. Is this where he lives, too? This is cool. And um, when I heard Nasty Girl, I went, oh, my God, that song's going to be a hit. It quickly became clear that this wasn't just a one-off experiment. Prince was building a three-band review that could help him express the many facets of his musical identity. It wasn't until I was at his house working on the Vanity Six album that I learned as we were going along that um, the time was involved and virtually we were a family, that we were a musical family that uh, actually was complementing what he was doing uh, on the feminine side of, uh, say, his story. The time was pure funk and more streetwise, more caricatures. And there was the definite difference between the three, but it still all gelled. solidified and two new albums in the can, it came time for Prince to turn his attention back toward his own album, 1999, and the singles that would soon make him a chart-topping artist. As Prince's longtime drummer Bobby Z recalls, the idea for the song 1999 came to Prince on the road when he and his band watched a particularly disturbing documentary hosted by Orson Welles. We were traveling on the road. There was a hotel sign. And it said, free HBO. That was a 
big deal. So everybody got to their room, turned on HBO, and there was a HBO documentary about Nostradamus and the prediction of the end of the world, 1999, 1999. And we're all blown away by this thing. You could feel it in the hotel rooms. They were just glued to the TV. So, of course, like normal people do, the, the next day, the water cooler talk is, did you see? And for Prince, he had written this song. So there explains the difference between mere mortals and Prince. So we're all going, wow. And then he just embodied the whole thing with 1999 the next day. Prince recorded the song in his home studio on Lake Riley in Chanhassen. Lisa Coleman was one of the people Prince tapped to sing the opening lines of the song. That was really the most methodical. Like, I remember I got to rehearsal in the morning, and he was actually at my keyboards and had the drum machine going, and he was, like, playing the boop, 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 And he said, you know, he looked at me, come here. And then so, like, as each person arrived at rehearsal that day, the drum machine never stopped, you know, like it just kept going and going and and everyone would add in their part. That night, he had us come to his house. At first, I sang that verse line by myself, but we added Jill because Jill just has a, (laughs) well, uh, I hate to say it, but she has a better voice than me. She just had, like, that fiery—it just was better for, like, the opening line of a song. So I remember doing that, and then I remember doing, like, the party, the vocals at the end. And, like, Prince was looking at me like, come on, Lisa, go, go. (laughs) And I was, like, really shy. I was sort of humiliated, but I was going for it, (laughs) clapping my hands and party vocals. You know, props to Jill Jones, because she's a really good singer, and she added a lot to the track. And having everybody sing a line, it was kind of a cool thing, and it was very Sly Stone. So that was kind of like, yeah, that's right, that's right, we can do it. We're, you know, just like the family stone. As Des Dickerson recalls, 1999 was a great example of Prince's evolving aesthetic, which would soon be labeled by critics as the Minneapolis sound. Part of the Minneapolis sound was Prince growing in his ability to kind of just assimilate everything around him and keep the best stuff and get rid of the stuff that didn't work. So to me, the Lindrum and kind of the polyrhythm thing Along with the Oberheim, the OB-8, you know, the horns being simulated by a synth, that was the Minneapolis sound. But what he did was find a way to do that with more of a pop motif. So you could have a song like 1999, which still kind of has this rhythmic thing and has the the horn stabs, but it's purely pop. Almost to the point at times of, of being almost silly, it's so poppy. But at the same time, it's apocalyptic. So you know what I mean? He just, he found that sweet spot. Yeah. What do you remember about recording on that track? What I remember is he called me, Des, Prince. He came over. 
So the first thing he did, actually put up the 1999 track. And he had recorded it in such a way that it could have been, you know, alternating verses where one singer sings the first verse in its entirety, one sings the second, and so on. So he just had me come in and actually had me sing most of the song. It's not just the lines that ended up on the, the record, but he had me sing through most of the song. The pitched down... Spoken 1999 and the vamp out. Well, that's me. He he had me as almost an afterthought because he had already done the don't worry, I won't hurt you. Don't worry, I won't hurt you. But he evidently got the inspiration. Let, let's kind of bookend that with this thing going out. So that, that was my voice. On the one hand, he was incredibly sort of inspired and spontaneous, but at the same time, he was also very calculating in a good way. So I think that he had learned along the way. His first album, he was just trying to, you know, go boldly where no man had ever gone before. And and then the second album, the, the label had put in the pressure of, yeah, you got to have a hit. You know what I mean? And so by the time 1999 came around, he had really kind of found, I would compare it to, you know, like, you know, an NFL quarterback. By the time you've been playing for five years, the game has slowed down and you see exactly what's happening before it happens. By 1999, that's kind of where he was. So that record was just this masterful combination of it's got, you know, the, the funk elements, but it's got the pop and it's got the hooks and it's got the stuff that's uniquely him. Des Dickerson was also in the studio when Prince was putting the finishing touches on what would become his first top 10 hit, Little Red Corvette. Guess I should close my eyes For the first time in his career, Prince gave a song's now iconic guitar solo to someone else. Well, I mean, we had actually had a conversation, I think two tours before that, was it? And I think it was in St. Louis. I, I, like, I can see the room. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to start playing guitar less and less. He said, you know what? <laughs> People aren't going to believe this. But he said, you know, you're a better lead player anyway. I'm just going to front. I'm going to focus on being a front man. And I'm going to have you do most of the lead stuff from now on. And that's what he did. Put that on the resume. It, yeah, it's a huge deal. Looking back now, it's like, of course, again, at the time, being an arrogant kid, I thought, well, it's about time. As more of the songs on 1999 were completed, Prince invited more and more people into the studio to hear what he had been working on. Bobby Z remembers returning to Prince's Lake Riley house to start tinkering with new electronic drum pads, including the Pearl Syncussions that he would play on the 1999 tour. And I go out there and um, we put the uh, Pearl Syncussion toms on Corvette, the, you know, dooch. And the bombs on 1999 that are so iconic. One of the things he also told me one time was, you know, this was back before Pro Tools and all that stuff, obviously. And every once in a while, you'd get a take, and the energy and the feel of the take was was good enough, was, was so good that even though there might have been a mistake technically, you, you wanted to use the take. So he said, you know what, when there's something in the track 
that, you know, you want to keep the track, but there's something in the track that, that you don't want in there. She put an explosion over it. <laughs> that, was just, <laughs> that was it. So now, you know, Studio Secrets with Prince put an explosion over the mistakes. That There you go. <laughs> That changes everything. It does. It does. Wow. <laughs> George Clinton said it's not funky till you put a nursery rhyme in it. Prince said put an explosion in it. So. Place we left the we're married, and then he starts playing me this other stuff that's you know Morris Morris's group, and it's just like okay, you know, and this is Vanity's group, and so whatever energy came out of that Stones thing, and he didn't sleep, and that was the beginning of the spark and the ignition that pretty much followed him through the rest of his career. That oh, I've just got this, and he just was on fire, and it was song after song, all the outtakes you hear on the box set, just. Endless amounts of, of recording, mixing, to the point where they had to decipher the, the boxes, you know, because he was moving so fast. There was one more movie that Prince watched repeatedly in this era and which undoubtedly shaped his visual aesthetic, Blade Runner, which Prince told his photographer, Alan Bolio, to watch for cues on how to photograph him and his band. For Bobby Z, the true signifier that Prince was entering a new phase of his career came when he showed up one day in a new custom-made jacket that could have come straight out of that film, the shiny, almost metallic-looking purple trench coat that Prince is wearing in the album photos, tour publicity, and music videos for 1999. We were going to shoot some photos for 1999, the videos for 1999, he walks into rehearsal and they brought it to him, kind of like this moment where, you know, all of a sudden, there it is, you know, this shiny purple trench coat. And he puts it on and um, he's like, all of a sudden, he's Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat. I mean, he just came alive and I just went, wow, here we go. We're going for like showbiz now. This is going to be a whole different direction. It's not going to be punk. You know, it'll be rebellious because he's always rebellious, but it's going to be glamorous. And the glamour came in and uh, never stopped, of course. He was one of the most glamorous characters that ever lived. For all the fast girls in the house Guess I should have known The way you parked your car sideways Wouldn't last So you're the kind of person Leaves and making out once Love them and leave back Guess I must be done Should have pocket full of forces Stroging in summer a 
Up next on Prince, the story of 1999, we'll talk about the massive 1999 tour, also known as the Triple Threat Tour, which featured Prince, The Time, and Vanity Six. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, that tour was fun, 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 fun. But it was sadder than I guess that makes it all right Prince, the story of 1999 is produced by The Current and supported by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This program was produced in collaboration with the Prince Estate and Warner Records and with their support. This story was hosted and produced by me, Andrea Swenson, produced and edited by Anna Wagel, mixed by Corey Schreppel, with script editing from Jay Gabler and production support from Brett Baldwin, Lynn Elliott, Cecilia Johnson, Jim McGuinn, David Safar, and Derek Stevens. Thanks to Trevor Guy, Michael Howe, Giancarlo Siama, and Dwayne Tudal. To learn more about The Current, visit thecurrent.org. If you haven't subscribed yet, search for Prince, the story of 1999 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, to learn more about Prince, please visit prince.com. Just one thing you got to ask.